Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Zach David Westerbeck. He's the author of You're Not Alone, the only book you'll ever need to overcome anxiety and depression. He is a mental health advocate, national speaker, college success coach, and author. Uh, today he's going to articulate how we can manage our mental health by combining therapy, meditation, persistence, and lifestyle changes. If that's of any interest to you, oh, I know it is to me. Stay tuned because we're going to talk about how to manage those intrusive thoughts, those unwanted ideas. We're going to talk about how to sit with ourselves in our, in our darkest moments. And why exhaustion and being wired is a dangerous uh, combination and and, and how to wiggle our way out of that. And then Zach said something about meditation I've never heard anyone else say. And I was like, what? My mind was like, I'm excited to have you on, brother. You you're married. You have a wife. You have a you're an author. You wrote a book. You are not alone. I forget who sings that, but that, but it is a song, but, but that's not, I probably can't even air this now because I sang too much of it. I want to start off with, uh, what it is that uh, define for me chronic brain disorder, because I don't know what that is. And I know this is something that you've experienced or struggle with. I don't know if it's something you still have, but talk to me about chronic brain disorder. It's a great question. Love that Leo. Um, yeah, I, I think that I would have had that question to, uh, Let's see. It's, it's 2022. I got to keep track. Uh, the onset of my brain disorder took place in 2016 and like before 2016, I think I had, I would say maybe an outdated perspective on what it meant to have mental health or what I, uh, call brain health. Um, and the reason why I call it brain health is as a destigmatizing tool. We don't call our heart health, soul health. We call it heart health because it's a tangible organ in the body and there are actions that we can take to improve its functionality. This is the exact same thing with our brains. Um, our brains are a tangible organ in the body, the most important organ in the body, and there are actions that we can take to improve uh, its functionality and then also decrease symptoms like anxiety, depression, some of the things that I know you talk about on the podcast. Um, but for me, before 2016, I was like, anxiety anxiety, depression, they're a choice, you know, uh, questions of, and you know, I, I, I before you kill yourself is a, a great name for, for this podcast. And I love the suicide prevention and candidly before 2016, I literally did not understand why somebody would take their own life. Couldn't, couldn't comprehend it. Um, but right around the start of 2016, and we can get into that story here in a, here in a little bit, but I started to experience symptoms of anxiety, depression, and ultimately at my lowest uh, points, thoughts of suicide, all of which these emotions and thoughts, I was actively choosing not to try and have and doing everything in my power to not feel anxious, not feel depression from meditating, sitting in a steam room until I nearly passed out thinking I needed to sweat the toxins out of my out of my body and just do a huge reset. And then everything would go back to the way it used to be. And so when I say chronic brain disorder, what, what I mean is 
I still live with anxiety. Um, I still, I have very, very low levels of depression and I don't have thoughts of suicide anymore, but that's because I completely changed my lifestyle. Um, I sought professional assistance. I changed my lifestyle. I changed, uh, the way that I relate to my thoughts and emotions. And as a result of that, I'm able to live with these symptoms without it significantly interfering with my life. Um, and I've gotten a lot of enjoyment back in my life, but this is something that still on a daily basis, I have to manage. And I, I wish it was one of those things where I went through a dark period. I, I came out the other side, I cured myself and now I never deal with it, um, anymore. It, it just, it wouldn't be true. You know, it's something every single day that I have to show up and, and work on. So, so talk me through what, when you were experiencing the suicidal ideations, what were those thoughts that were going through your mind? Was it the pain is too much? Uh, the, the future is hopeless. Like talk me through that because there's so many listeners out there who think that they're the only ones experiencing these thoughts or having these thoughts and, um, and sensations. And it's so powerful to hear someone who has had it and, uh, was able to move through it. Yeah. And I, I love that question, Leo. I think it's so important. And I, I know like every time I jump on a podcast like this, and that's why I love what you're doing is like, there are people that are in that place, like where I was in 2016, 2017. And like, what I say is I felt like I was walking the tightrope of life. Like every single day I woke up and I thought I was essentially going to going to war with my brain. And so just a couple quick statistics is like the CDC or the Center for Disease Control estimates that one in four Americans over the age of 18 are going to experience some form of anxiety or depression this year. Over the course of an American's lifetime, that number doubles to 50%. So we're talking about 80 plus million Americans, adult Americans, that at some point are going to experience anxiety and depression. And one of those symptoms that can spin off from depression or severe anxiety is thoughts of suicide. So if you're that person and you're in that place, you're not weak, weird, or different. You are a human and you are like a large, large percentage of us. Um, so don't feel alone. And that's why I wrote, you know, the title of my book is you're not alone, but I think it's a great question in terms of, uh, genres of thoughts. And like, you definitely touched on a couple themes, you know, one of them was literally like this suffering is just unbearable. Um, every single second of every single day, it felt like I was just kind of slugging through the mud. Feet felt heavy, legs felt heavy, head felt heavy, uh, while simultaneously my jaw being tense and my heart beating through my chest because of the anxiety. So you're like, you're exhausted, but you're wired. Um, and that combination is very, very, very painful both psychologically and from a physical standpoint. And then th the other thing that you touched on was basically more or less like, how can I do this for the rest of my life? Like, and I re distinctly remember my lowest moment of hopelessness was thinking five, 10, 15, 20, 25 years out into the future and having the thought, like, if this is how I'm going to feel, this is not what I signed up for. 
Like if this is what the rest of my life is going to look like, then honestly, and not even trying to be dramatic, but like, I would rather just not even be around. I don't even want to feel this. Like it's too much. Um, but that thought, and that was, that was really the thought that, that broke my heart at my lowest moment, um, was ultimately what got me to, to take the step to begin seeking help and, and, and really try to recover. You said something very powerful at the end, the, what broke my heart. Wow. That's it, a, that's a phrase. It's a term. Those are words that people don't utter very frequently or admit to that they are experiencing heartbreak, right? Uh, can you tell me more about that, that it, that it broke your heart? Because I just read that in another article about someone, and, uh, and he just described the heartbreak, and it was around his, his friendships uh, with his other friends. Can, can you tell me more about the heartbreak and what was related to that? Yeah, I think, and I, I like that question too, because I know you're, you're a life coach. Um, and I know that you work with people on relationships. And so there are so many people walking around with wounded hearts and, and vulnerabilities from so many different things that have happened in life. And so I'm never ashamed to say that I broke my own heart or that I have trauma and, and things that I remember from even previous relationships, because it, it just makes me human. But in order to answer that question, I think I just need to take one step back, if that's okay, and kind of give give some context to the to, to your listening, uh, your audience. So, um, 2014, graduate from university, moved down to Raleigh, North Carolina, to start my career working for Cisco Systems, the the technology company, not the food company. I always feel like I have to make that distinction. I would have been more than happy to to sling some wings and and some, some patties and some Tyson chicken, but, uh, no, I was selling technology. And so get down there, you know, eager, excited, uh, start of, you know, it's, it's like the start of the new year here in 2020 next chapter of my life, right. Going to go out and make a name for myself. And, um, I, at that time, I thought I was going to do it through technology, uh, and, and kind of go down that path. And so I'm in the early in career program, I'm training and I'm, I'm learning a lot. And everything was good for about the first 10 months. And then right around the 10 month mark is when things started to change with the way that my brain functioned. And all of a sudden I'm waking up with sweaty palms, dry mouth, uh, a, a heartbeat that feels like it's pounding through my chest, like a drum line, you know what I mean? And, and racing thoughts, uh, almost like the best way I could describe the thoughts is like, if you were to go up to a beehive and smack it and the bees were just swirling all around the hive. Right. And I just could not get a grasp on my thoughts. Like the harder I tried to stop them, the worse they got. And so I'm a young man and I've never talked about mental health, nor have I ever talked about my emotions, like very old school. I wouldn't say like toxic masculinity, but definitely like, you know, men don't cry type mentality to put a theme on it. And uh, I'm like, I'm going to figure this out on my own, which is, uh, I was listening to another one of your podcast episodes was something that you talk about when, when two people come together and, and put their intention into something while still maintaining their individuality is powerful things can be created. And I completely agree with that. And I see that in my relationship with my wife, but at that time, 
really, really felt like I was, I had to, I had to figure out everything on my own. Everything was my responsibility. And so 2016 is right around the corner. And I tell myself, you know what, let me take the first month of 2016 uh, I'd been getting into some personal development books and I was like, you know what? I'm really excited. Let me, let me go ahead and get some goals down for the year. And really the main goal at that time was let me reset my brain. Let me flip it back to the way that it used to be. In my mind, my brain was like a light switch. And if something had been turned on and I just needed to turn it back to the way that it used to be and my life would be good. Everything would go back to normal. I could get refocused on my career. I could go back to doing the things that I enjoy um, you know, playing pickup basketball, uh, hanging out with friends, you know, the, the usual things that all of us human beings uh, value and, and, and cherish some sort of hobby, some relationships, um, you know, a, a way to spend your time. And so what I was going to do is I was going to go to work, I was going to go to the gym, I was going to sit in the steam room and sweat out the toxins, if it meant till I nearly passed out, right? Because when I was in college, I just, you know, I thought I'd warm my brain out, right? I, I partied a lot. I was smoking a lot of weed uh, back then, a ton. Um, and I was like, you know what? I just need to detox. And so that's what I did. I went to work. I went to the gym. I sat in the steam room and did a lot of sweating. But at the end of the month, I got results, just not the results that I was looking for. And, and by, by January 31st or February 1, not only had the symptoms I, I told everybody about all your listeners about the, the pounding heart, the sweaty palms, the dry mouth, racing thoughts, not only had those still, not only were they still there, but they had gotten worse. So now I'm in full blown panic mode. I'm like, my plan didn't work. This was, this was supposed to be my little, my little 31 day plan, get us back on track and get us back to, to the life that um, I wanted to live. And so I go into full-blown panic mode and this is Zach's home remedy time period. So now I'm, I'm trying different substance or diff, uh, different supplements. I'm still cutting out substances. Um, I'm working out at different times. I'm still doing the steam room. I'm like, I'm trying to sleep more. I'm doing a lot of the things that, you know, you would think would be, would be helpful in terms of flipping your brain back and nothing is working. And so during this time period, I'm doing two things really, really well, hiding from the outside world, what's going on internally. And secondly, denying to myself just how quickly my brain health was deteriorating. And with another, within another couple of months, and I th think that this is what's the scariest part with, with brain health and, and for your listening base and wh whoever's in this space right now, when you're doing everything you think is possible to turn around anxiety and depression and those symptoms just continue to intensify and get worse, you start to get scared. Because you're like, I literally do not have control over my brain. Like my entire life, I've more or less been able to control my thoughts. I've more or less been able to control my emotions. Or even if I wasn't able to control my emotions, I didn't have such a deep awareness of these emotions that I'm feeling now, or such a deep awareness of the thoughts that are you know, popping up in my head, these thoughts that are causing me so much anxiety and depression. And so I start writing this narrative that my brain is betraying me. All of a sudden, my bet, my best asset, right, is, is turning against me. And so over the course of the next month, uh, next couple of months, something, a, a third symptom crept in, and that was suicidal thoughts. 
And at first it was, you know, one or two thoughts a day, eh, whatever, you know, bat those down. No chance. I love life. Not no way. Then a couple of days go by. Now it's, you know, it's four or five, then it's six, 10, then it's 20, 30. And before I know it, I'm having thoughts of suicide from the moment I wake up until the moment I go to bed. And this is, this is driving to work. This is sitting in, in the boardroom with key stakeholders, my boss, my peers trying to act uh, like I care about what's going on. Cause I want to care about what's going on, but all the while I'm having thoughts of suicide. You know, my brain literally telling me you should kill yourself. You should be dead. In addition to some of the themes that you were talking about. And so I had uh, kind of developed this little ritual during this very, very dark period where I would come home and I would sit on the balcony of my four-story apartment and I would watch the sunset. So one night I come home and I go out and I'm watching the sunset. I'm running my little, my little, uh, my little playbook here because for those 10 minutes, I felt a little bit of peace. Like I felt like myself again. So I stand out there, I'm watching the sunset. I'm just kind of looking around, taking in the scenery. And I put my hands on the railing of, of the, of the balcony. And I just look over the edge. Now this time it's an innocent look, like I'm just looking around and boom, a thought pops up into my head. And it tells me that if I throw myself over the edge of the balcony, that I'll fall the, you know, the four floors onto the cement pavement below. And if I go head first, I'll get the job done. Right. And I, I won't get graphic because I don't want to trigger anybody um, too, too much right now, but it was a very vivid, vivid image in my head. And I took my hands off the railing and my palms were sweaty. I was, tears were welding in my eyes and I fell back into my apartment and I, I curled into the fetal position and bawled for what felt like an hour. Like one of those, like, it's like, I compare it to like one of those solid laughs where when you laugh so hard, it hurts your abs it was like that, but with crying. And I hadn't let myself cry like that. I hadn't let myself admit at a, at a deep level what was going on. And the reason why I cried so hard is because when I thought 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, if this is what my life was going to be, it's not what I had signed up for. But what broke my heart is that I'd had suicidal thoughts before. I'd batted them down, though. You know, it was like, no, what F that no chance. Like this is not, <laughs> I love life and I have always loved life and I'm going to continue to love life. And you thought are not going to dictate that for me, but for the very first time in my life, I actually thought, you know what, maybe, maybe this is what I need to do. Maybe, maybe I do need to take my life because I can't live like this forever. And, and that thought and the fact that it came from my own brain, right? A thought you should go kill yourself and a thought of almost agreement is really what broke my heart. I felt, I felt betrayed at the deepest level and I was confused about what was going on. Like I didn't know why and like how this could even happen. Like I didn't think this is – I was – in such a deep state of shock. Like I had no idea that the human brain could, could do this to somebody. And I think that that was really devastating for me. You know, I've, I've heard betrayal talked about so many times and usually it's in reference to another person. And this is one of the first times I've heard it 
in reference to our brain, our body, our mind, our thoughts. And I imagine that it had to be so terrifying, so scary that it's coming, that the enemy is within, mm. right? Versus without. And because it, it, when it's without, then it, it seems like it's, it's easier to manage, to attack, to arrange resources in a way that allows us to go after it and, and be proactive. But when it's within, that can be scary and daunting, especially if it's a, a new experience somewhere you haven't been before. And then you say, who do I talk to? Who do I turn to? And throughout your journey, I haven't heard you mention anything about father, mother, siblings. Take us back a little further and share with us this idea of I'm, I'm fully responsible for everything that happens in my life and I got to figure this out myself, right? You said men don't cry. Everything is my responsibility. Where did that message come to you from? That everything is your responsibility? It's mm. a really good question. And I'll tell you, I, during that time period, to talk about that battle within and not from uh, without is, uh, it's interesting because I remember I would say to myself, everywhere I go, there I am. And it, that was always fine before, you know? I was happy with my thoughts. I was happy with my brain. Everywhere I go, there I am. But there was this time period where I was, I thought that if I flew to a new state or I drove to a new city or I went to see a new friend that I could leave that Raleigh brain back in Raleigh and quickly started to learn that wherever I go, there I am. And, and, and that denial was not gonna get the job done. But to answer your question, which is a great question, I think it was, it was twofold. You know, first off, I was, I was raised largely. So my parents are, have been married for 30 plus years, happy marriage. I have a sibling, my sister, who's one of my best friends. She actually lives in LA. So she's, she's up in LA right now, but, um, my dad was a traveling salesman. So my mom raised my sister and I Monday through Thursday while dad was gone. And I think the women in my family had had no problem expressing emotion. And to a certain extent, I don't think I did either. But what started to happen in about it was about sixth grade is when I grad like when I graduated from elementary school and went into middle school, I started hanging out with a group of guys who I think were that we were all athletes growing up and there was a, and this is what I mean as far as I, I'm, I'm talking through the lens of what I know but in what I experienced but you know young men they tease each other and they make fun of each other and I remember very early on in our friendship tearing up once and them just giving me the most shit for it and that reinforcement over and over and over again and learning early that like if I don't suppress my emotions I'm going to get made fun of and instead I just need to dish it out everywhere I go and then I can go back into my space and figure it out on my own so it was that conditioning 
uh, with a friend group that started in middle school and lasted all the way through college. And then it was, my dad is a very sweet man and he's very calm and quiet, but he doesn't show emotion. I've seen my dad cry once, once or twice, uh, once in college. And then even when his dad passed away, I, I didn't see him cry. So my dad uh, does not express emotion. And I think it's, you know, partly who he is and partly because of his upbringing. And we've had talks now that now that I'm a mental health advocate or a brain health advocate full time, you know, he's opened up to me about his brain health and things that he deals with and things that he thinks about and emotions that he feels that I think up until I started to normalize it, he just wouldn't talk about it. And so I think it was, it was that combination of things. It was nothing so traumatic. It was, I think, an experience that a lot of young men go through. You get teased by your friends and then you've got a father that doesn't express emotion and you equate those two consciously or subconsciously that when you have, a, when you have an emotion, you, you, you push it down and you keep chugging forward. Um, and then my dad was always like a do it, do it himself kind of guy, right? Busted pipe. He's figuring it out. He's not going to hire somebody. Um, issue at work. That's his responsibility. He has to figure it out. Um, so I think, yeah, just absorbing those types of, just absorbing that energy and, and observing that, you know, I've learned, my wife and I were talking about how we're going to raise our kids. And I think a big focus we're going to have in the house is, is psychology and really focusing on how we message things to our kids because kids are always observing and then absorbing, you know, and really working to help them build out a really, really healthy mentality. You said that your dad was a traveling salesman mm -hmm. and that he was always gone. How did it feel to have a dad that was always gone? It's a good question. I, you know, it's so funny because it didn't really bother me. He called us every single night from the road. He was at, if he was, if he was in town, he was at every sporting event. Um, you know, family dinners were a thing. So we sat down for family dinner uh, every night. And again, when you're a kid, you're not going out really on the weekends. You might have a sleepover with a friend, but like if we were at home, we were doing family dinners. So that that part of it so much didn't bother me ironically as as i'm you know speaking and traveling all over the country the more i'm realizing that i definitely want to make sure i'm around as much as possible but i never felt like my dad was not a part of my life if that makes sense you said it didn't really bother you what was the part that bothered you i don't i don't know if i had a uh, i don't know i don't know if i had a part that bothered me um I think if anything, the thing that bothered me was being the only guy in the house, maybe a lot of, a lot of, um, womanly energy, which is great. But, uh, I think as I got older and like, I don't know, I think as I got older, I really valued hanging out with my guy friends and, and it's kind of being around that type of energy and not not always being so emotional, which is funny as a brain health advocate, I'm all about talking about emotions and your feelings. Um, but yeah, I don't, maybe, maybe that I would think, but again, I, I don't know. I never really felt like I lacked too like much at all too much growing up. 
yeah, being the only guy in the house, it's like two against one, right? Kind of, yeah. Did you feel outnumbered? Maybe a little bit, but my sister is, she's super funny and she's got, she, I mean, it's funny. I wouldn't categorize her, her personality as girly, but she does, you know, she gets her nails done. She gets her hair done. She loves makeup. She loves fashion, but she can hang with the guys. Like if she's in a, a she, like we kind of morphed friend group. She's two years younger than me. Like she'll dish it out. She'll dish it out worse than me. Um, she can, she can really hold her own. So I would say there was a little bit of that, but I also like I played sports. So every day after school, I was, you know, it wasn't like I was at home and it was my mom and my sister. It was more like after school, I'm at a practice of some sort and then coming home, eating, homework, bed, rinse, repeat type of deal. Oh, I love that. It sounds like you and your sister are very close right now. How, how old are you now? Is that I'm 30 years old. 30 years old. Yeah. And what was your degree in? Economics. (laughs) Believe it or not, economics. Did not think I was going to go down this path. Was not on the roadmap. Well, yeah, you couldn't have picked something less emotional. That that completely (laughs) makes sense. Was your father in the war? Is it was that kind of his (laughs) background for the stoicism? No. No, he was not in the war. I just think it was his upbringing. A German, traditional German family. Don't don't talk emotions. It's, you know, it's all jokes and all fun, but the the emotion side of things, just not so much, you know, just not talked about. And he was, it was him, his brother, and then my, my, my papa, he's passed away, but, um, and then, and then my grandma. So, you know, it was three guys in the house. Yeah, I, you know, I definitely want to highlight the fact that you sat down and talked to your father to have an understanding of why he is the way he is. Uh, and I think that is a place that I'm getting to also with my mom is, in terms mm-hmm. of understanding her. My dad passed away and understanding his history, even to the point where I'm researching where he was from, the time period, like what was going on in the world at the time he was growing up, mm-hmm. just to add more context to his character and, and understanding. And it's been so enlightening in terms of helping me understand who he is. And then also with my mom, since she's still alive to, um, understand her background and what influenced her way of being. And, and then also to understand what I have, uh, not adopted, but, and not accumulated is not the word, but what's been transferred over to me. Yeah, transferred. Yeah. Uh, and that's not even a word I'm looking for. But anyway, but I I think we 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 get the point. Um, I want to highlight something that you said earlier on. When you said, you know, I felt like I was trying. When you try everything that that you think is possible, and then that doesn't work, it fails, and then fear kicks in because mm-hmm. then you're like, wow, I'm not in control. Right. Because in the mm-hmm. beginning, when our mind and our thoughts start racing and our, our you know, we have that M&M moment, you know, my palms are sweaty, <laughs> you know, heartbeats, mom spaghetti, all that stuff. I mean, you, you're literally wearing a sweater, Zach. Um, when we have those M&M moments, it's a reminder that we're not in control. And then we feel like our brain is betraying us, like I'm doing everything to help you. Why? It's almost like that. Why has God forsaken me? kind of thing. 
the suicidal thoughts kick in because you start to feel like your attempts are useless, life is meaningless, you're completely helpless because you've done all the things. And, and then what's interesting is that you were trying to sweat it out. Yeah. But where you seem to find a moment of clarity is when you actually broke down, mm. dropped to your knees, got in a fetal position, and cried it out. You know, you just made me think of something. Break it down, Zach. It was almost like my moment of rebirth. Literally being in the fetal position like a baby, vulnerable like a baby, in that most vulnerable state right at the start of the the next chapter for me. So I had never even thought about the symbolism there. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it was it was a rebirth. And I think, you know, and I really, I, I hate that I think this, I hate's a strong word. I, I don't, I strongly dislike that I think this, but I do believe that a lot of human beings have to feel extreme pain. That lowest, lowest moment, that lowest, lowest point before something clicks that something has to change. I think there's a lot of halfway wounded people walking around the, uh, around the planet, meaning that they're hurt, but they're not hurt so bad that they want to pause and really look deep and do the introspection and, and do some of that work and they can kind of get by. They're okay. They're not great. Maybe they're even, you know, closer to, to closer to where I was, but not not they haven't quite hit that point and sometimes i think for for the listener who's there okay now you're ready here's your rebirth here's your rebirth moment are you in the fetal position right have you just bawled your eyes out are you in the darkest are you saying things to yourself like i feel like there's no way out or i'm in the darkest place i've ever been okay great we can do something with this because i think that pain I don't, I don't advocate staying in pain for forever, but I do think that pain can be a motivator at the start if it's necessary, right? If you've tried everything and you're still feeling pain and you're at that rock bottom moment or what you think you've tried um, for everything, uh, maybe, maybe this is your starting point. Maybe this is the type of energy that you need to get intentional and, and really take that next step for your, for your brain health and your recovery. Man, that brings to mind when I had a kickboxing coach and I was in our first session, he had me trying to throw these punches and he's like, man, I need you to just let the punches go, man. Let, let, let the fists, you know, fly. And I was like, I'm trying, I'm, I'm doing my best. You know, it's kind of like you, like I'm trying, I'm, 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 I'm going to the gym. I'm sleeping well, I'm, I'm sweating it out. And, and then he was like, let's go do some pushups. And we did some pushups and we get to 10, get to 20 the 30 and i'm looking at him like 40 50 we do a hundred push-ups and then he's like all right now let's put the let's put the gloves back on and now because he completely broke me down i had nothing left in the tank i, I was literally almost sprawled out on the floor and now i'm just letting it fly now i'm moldable now i've surrendered now i'm not thinking i'm just being i'm in the present and and that's what you're talking about it was the rebirth he was like, I got to break this dude down. 
He's in his head. He's thinking about how to throw a punch. I just need him to throw the punch. And, and it's the same thing in life in that, you know, when we cry, I love that you said you're like, you're halfway, there's a bunch of halfway wounded people out there. Um, true. <laughs> but he goes, but when you get to that point where you feel like there's no way out, okay, great. This is great. It's, this is not a sad time. This is not the worst time. This is the best time because now you, you, you're going to listen to what the therapist has to say. You're going to go get help. Now you know you need help. When you're halfway wounded, you think, oh, I could just uh, you know, put a Band-Aid on it or I could just rinse it off. It'll be fine. No, because those halfway wounds become infected and an infection spreads. And when that infection spreads, it gets up to the brain. There's, you know, I got, I got athlete's foot. It's in my foot. It's in my toe. It's in my toe, Zach. And I was like, man, I'm not, I don't care about this. I don't care about this, this, little, this little fungus in my toe. And then I was like, man, I, I don't feel right. And then somebody was like, you know that athlete's foot, it, uh, it starts to spread through the toenails, but then it gets into the blood system. Mm. And, and it can cause uh, infections in your, in your blood system, which can then affect the organs, which then can affect the brain. Now, it's, it's slow. It takes decades, but mm. it's happening. So when we're halfway wounded, when, when we're injured, when we're hurt, when, when we feel slighted or betrayed, that's, that's the time to sit down and address it. Don't, don't, don't wait till it gets to the brain. Oh, it's, it's a lot of work. So that's why I'm excited to have you on here, Zach, because you, know, you, called it, you call it a chronic brain disorder because you're still... It's something you're still working with. Like you said, you're not, you're, not, you're not out the woods yet. Something you're working on daily. So talk to me about, I know that you use therapy and meditation and lifestyle changes. Talk to me, talk to me about the therapy first. So you, you hit this, this wall where you're in a fetal position, you're crying, you're teared up, and you go, okay, I, I got I to gotta, I gotta take a new course of action. What does that look like? Mm. Well, first off, great, fantastic analogy on the fly too. I, uh, it, it's too true, right? Like, especially with brain health, like things can creep into your life slowly. Depression literally creeps in. And then, you know, one day you wake up and you're like, whoa, like I am very depressed, especially when it happens the very first time after that, you can build an awareness, but you're absolutely right. It can creep in through the toenail to use that analogy and before you know it, it's, it's in your brain. Right. Um, and so for me, right. It, it's like with your listeners too. hit that rock bottom moment. I'm in the fetal position. I'm bawling. And I'm like, I've tried everything in my power and nothing is working. And my alternative, the next option that I'm kicking around in my head is not desirable. Right. Which is maybe I, maybe I need to take my own life. And so I said, well, let me call my parents. Let me call my parents. Let me, let me talk to them. Let me, let me express to them what is going on before I take any other action and see what they have to say. And so I remember I picked up the phone and I called them and through choked up tears, but really trying to play it cool. And I think I was really trying to downplay what I was going through. And in reflecting, I think it was less for them and more for me. Because I think that if I acknowledged to the fullest extent what was going on, it would be too much to bear. 
So I, you know, through choked up tears, I tell him, Hey, you know, I'm anxious. I'm depressed. I'm having thoughts of suicide. Don't worry. I want to live. I don't want to take my own life. I don't know what's going on though. I have tried everything in my power and I don't know what to do. And I'll never forget. There was a long pause on the other end of the phone. And they said, Zach, first off, you know, we want, we want to let you know that we love you. But second off, this is, this is outside of our scope. Like we are not equipped to, to, to address this. This seems like something that a, a professional, somebody who's gone to school for this needs to address. And so the best piece of advice that we could give you is to start that process. I remember, you know, my parents were like, do you want us to come down to you? Do you want to come home? Do you need, do you need a support system? And again, I still kind of had this mentality of I can figure it out on my own. I think nowadays I would, if I really needed it or not even really needed it, but just felt that I needed it at all, I would take the time to rest. Maybe I would have even taken a leave from work and I would have focused solely on my brain health, starting with therapy. Um, but I saw you stand up there, so I will pause. I don't know if potentially you have a question there or a comment. I'm very fidgety. I'm, I'm, I'm very wiry. I can't sit still, <laughs> Zach. That's why this is audio only, because I'm all over the place. I, I, there's no way I, I, could, I could post videos of myself. I'm, I'm, all, I'm just grabbing things, moving around. So don't, don't mind me. You have a very calming voice. When I listen to your podcast episodes, it puts me in a trance, which in a good way, might I add. So that's a good thing. I'm like, shit, man, I wish I had a deeper voice. I think I need to start like walking around and talking like this, you know, <laughs> I don't have a deep voice, man. So I hope people uh, still still want to listen to this. <laughs> uh, 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 the truth be told, I used to practice uh, listening to Barry White albums when I was a kid. I don't know if you know, Barry White is he's he's an uh, old R&B singer and his phrase was show your eyes. And Ooh. and all the women be like, ooh. And I was like, oh, I got to learn that show you right. Oh, I'm gonna get to know Barry. Oh, I know Barry. Why well, I just pulled him up. I'm gonna I'm gonna get to know him a lot better now. If you're if you mean to tell me you've been in your bag practicing that deep voice, it sounds it sounds like that's my next step. <laughs> I'm about to have Barry White and you on repeat just all day. <laughs> just my wife's gonna be like, who are you trying to be? <laughs> Hey, baby, how are you? Um, but yeah, so so yeah, rock bottom moment, call my parents. Uh, they say, look, outside of our scope, we love you. We want you to recover. We'll come to you. You can come to us. How do you want to approach this? And I'm like, no, 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 no I got this. So immediately hop onto Google the next day and I start the search process. And again, all old negative stigma. So I want to address this. Maybe there's a listener that would feel this way too. Like I'm Googling therapists in my area while suicide, having suicidal ideations, while depressed, while anxious, also simultaneously thinking to myself, I can't believe I'm this guy. Like, I can't believe I'm this guy. I never thought I'd be this guy. Like I'm looking up a shrink. I'm looking up a, a psychologist and now I literally, I mean, I think it, they're superheroes, you know, like understanding the brain is like the most important thing. This type of information needs to be taught in every level of school. But at the time out way outdated old belief system. Right. So I'm like, am I this guy really? So maybe somebody's 
in that position now. And all they needed to hear was like, it's okay to be that guy. It's actually, now I look at it the other way. It's kind of whack to walk around depressed and anxious and not do anything about it. Like, would you walk around with a sprained ankle for the rest of your life or a torn ACL or a, or a pulled hamstring and be embarrassed and ashamed by that? No, you would address it because you want to get back in the game. And I think that that's the same thing with your brain. Everything begins and ends in the mind. Um, and so here we are, 23 years old, trying to find the right therapist. And candidly, the next step is that I want people to understand is that the first therapist that you find might not be the right fit. And this was certainly the case for me. The first therapist for me, she was a wonderful person, but she was trying to tell me that there was a war being raged inside of me between um, the devil and God, and that I needed to sort things out with God, and then things would be healed. Now, here's the deal. There are some of your listeners who, you know, they might be extremely religious. They might be very, very Christian, and that resonates with them, and that's okay. If that's what you believe in, then you should find it. And look, I work, I have a lot of friends that are very Christian, and you should find a therapist that takes a faith-based approach. For me, though, personally, that did not resonate and it wasn't helping. And that's the big key that I want to point out, whether you're faith based or not. If you leave a therapy session feeling worse than when you started, that's a signal that that things aren't working. I, I, I got I broke a smile on you, Leo. <laughs> you're like, yes, yes, I hear that. Um. So again, nothing wrong with Christianity, nothing wrong with being religious, nothing wrong with finding a faith-based uh, therapist, but you do want to become aware of how you are going into a session and how you feel when you leave. And for me, I was leaving the sessions feeling worse. So now I'm like, okay, well, I went to seek help. This didn't work. And I'm extra terrified because I'm like, is this all that's out there? Again, small knowledge base. And I, I'm... I'm sure that if somebody's coming to your page, you're going to have somebody, right, looking you up on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, finding your, your podcast because they're in a place of desperation. And I want them to know there are thousands of therapists and psychologists that specialize in different genres of treatment. There is something out there for you. And so after some trial and error, I did eventually find a psychologist that knew what was going on with me. Shout out Dr. Irene Wagner one of the best in her field. Again, lucky, lucky. She's one of the top uh, professionals in, in, in her field. And uh, we, we sat down and she immediately within the first session was able to diagnose me. I was diagnosed with a chronic brain disorder known as OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder, where the core symptoms are severe anxiety, deep depression, and thoughts of suicide. And what drives the anxiety and the depression and the thoughts of suicide are unwanted intrusive thoughts. And so the best way, the number one way and the scientifically proven most effective way to treat OCD specifically, but I would argue a lot of anxiety disorders is exposure and response prevention or ERP. So for those listening who maybe can relate to that it's ERP or exposure and response prevention. And you should look for a psychologist that went to school for that specific type of talk therapy and that type of, and, and can conduct that. 
so many things I want to unpack. First, I want to highlight that in your moment of despair, curled up in a fetal position, crying, you called someone, you reached out. And I can't imagine how heavy the phone must have been. Because like you said, you, I, you, like, you were like, I can't believe I'm this guy. I'm looking up a therapist. I'm calling my parents. And shout out to your parents for being like, uh, this is out of our realm here. We, we don't know how to handle this. You're going to have to get professional help. Well, most parents, I don't know, would have said that specifically. I mean, I think most parents would say, call somebody talk to somebody but to admit we're not skilled in this area and the people you need to talk to or you know on a on another uh phone call or phone line that that's beautiful so shout out to your parents shout out to you for calling someone because i'm always advocating call anybody they call an enemy just talk to someone mm. uh name it claim it dump it is what we always talk about so thank you for that. And I love that you reframe the uh, felt I need versus uh, really need it. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times we wait till we really need something to ask for it. Then it's too late. Don't wait till rent is due to ask for rent money. Mm. You you knew at the be you knew at the beginning of last month that you were going to be a little short. You knew two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Ask then. Don't wait until the fungus gets from your foot to your brain mm. to be like, hey, I need to address this. Which is what I did. Uh, I need to address this foot fungus. Like, don't wait till you really need it. And a lot of us, and I know I have that that same uh, malady of where I feel like. Well, unless I really need it, I shouldn't ask because then people are going to be like, well, you could do it yourself or people need to see the pain in my face in order for me to to feel like I deserve to get help. And it's like, no, no, no. If you feel like you need a hug, if you feel like you need to talk to someone, if you feel like you need a financial assistance, whatever you feel like you need, be willing, be willing. I like the word willing, not trying, willing to ask for it, to be vulnerable, to put yourself out there. So I love that you you made that distinction. Also, uh, you said, and, and this is so valuable. You said, if you said you would address it because you want to get back in the game. And I, I want to highlight that because I realize that a lot of us who are struggling with anxiety, depression, suicidal ideations, we're letting it go because we haven't defined what the game is, mm. right? When I played football and I got hurt, I wanted to be bandaged up because I wanted to play football. I knew what the game was. I knew what the stakes were. Mm. And I, was, I bought into the mission and the purpose, the players, the coach, my love of football. And sometimes if we're not – on a team, or if we haven't defined the team that we're on, because we can pick our team as a, as adults, whether it's the church or school, family, friends. If we haven't defined what our game is, then it becomes easier for us 
to walk around halfway wounded. So d- define what your, your purpose is. You know, in AA, they talk about higher power. Whatever that thing is, you're, you're trying to serve. But you have to realize that if you're going to let yourself go, you have to ask yourself, well, what else am I letting go also? And, and maybe your, the why, the thing that you're holding on to, isn't strong enough to buoy you to this planet, to life. Um, and then, Zach, you also mentioned, is this all that's out there? I want to address that phrase because that word all, a lot of us are walking around with the all or nothing, right? Because mm. you went to one therapist and then you had the thought, is this all that's out there? <laughs> right? A lot of us have made one attempt at seeking help. We've asked one therapist. We've made one phone call. We've journaled once and then said, well, that didn't work. Mm. I guess nothing works, mm. right? That, that black and white thinking, that all or nothing is detrimental. So if you're using words like all, never, and that's why earlier, Zach, when you said um, only, you're like, I'm, I'm the only uh, man in the house. And I was like, so many people are using that word only because mm. to me that denotes isolation aloneness Mm -hmm. and and it and perhaps that's how i felt when i heard you say it Mm -hmm. like i'm I'm alone in this where's my dad where's my backup where's my support and that may not have been an experience for you but because i grew up without a father in a house Mm -hmm. um i was i was clearly projecting and uh so i also appreciate you saying you know the 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 therapist was able to diagnose it as OCD and an unwanted and intrusive thought. So please, uh, first of all, is there anything that I've said that you want to comment on? And then secondly, please explain to us exposure response prevention. I mean, just just a great back and forth here because I, I, I saw you with the notepad and the pen and I said, you know what, maybe I need to Maybe I need to mimic that behavior because I don't want to forget some of these things. So you had a great, you made some great points. So I wrote a few things down. Um, first time experiences, right? The uh, athlete's foot from the toe to the brain. You brought that up. And then for me, uh, first time experiencing anxiety and depression, and then ultimately suicidal thoughts. Waited until it was as, as bad as it could possibly be. Same with you, athlete's foot, toe to the brain. Waited until it was as bad as it could possibly be first time experience. So you have listeners, you have people that plug into your podcast all the time. And you've also got somebody that just randomly clicked on this podcast episode because they're in the darkest place of their life. And you know, the name of your podcast first resonated. Then as they were scrolling, the title that you chose for this episode resonated. So here we are now, wherever we are in time for them. And they're experiencing these emotions for the first time. I bet you, you never let that athlete's foot creep up from the toe to the brain ever again. And that was the exact same thing for me. The darkest, darkest point of my life took place back in 2016. And after that experience, I vowed to never let it happen again by taking the necessary steps through therapy, lifestyle changes, and mindset shifts, which we've, which we're diving into and talking about now. And so I want that person who's in their first time experience 
right now. I, I want to give them permission to be maybe not in the darkest place of their life. Like what we've talked about earlier, maybe you don't need to be at that deepest point of pain to now address it. Because what I'll tell you, and I'm sure Leo can resonate with this. Once you get to that rock bottom moment, yes, if you're there right now and you're listening, that's great. We can work with this, right? We can use that pain. We can use that fear as motivation, but you're still living from a place of fear and you're scrambling. I just remember scrambling, scrambling for months trying to find, because there's a delay between the time that you schedule the appointment and the time that you meet with the actual therapist. There's a delay between sessions. So if you are even getting the inkling that you're experiencing depression or, 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 or anxiety, or maybe the first thought of suicides come into your head. Like for me, right? It was one, then the next day it was two, then the next day it was, you know, so on and so forth. Now is the time. Don't let your first time experience be your worst experience. The next thing that you talked about that I want to address is values-based living and purpose. I think one of the biggest reasons why I recovered, and I know that you were a former D1 athlete, and, it's not, and I wasn't sure what sport it was, so it's football. Great sport. I played football as well. Um, actually, probably wouldn't play it now, like looking back. It's, it's a very violent sport, and it's not great for your brain. It's, it's not great for your brain, but it is a fun sport. Um, basketball and football are my, my favorite sports, but um, Leo, you had something to live for, right? You hurt yourself. You were injured. I've been injured myself. And sometimes you're, 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 you're actually injured at a level where you should sit out for a while, but you love the game. It brings so much meaning. It brings so much purpose. You value it so much and everything that comes with playing a team-based sports competition, camaraderie, uh, development of a skill set, uh, just a, a way to spend your time. <laughs> so you want to get back in the game. And for me, I think, and this doesn't need to be everybody's path. Uh, of course, I would invite anybody who's interested in advocacy to join. You know, I'm just one person of a much larger ecosystem of, in my opinion, uh, revolutionaries right? People who are shifting the culture. There's a lot of great culture movements taking place in this country right now. Um, and this is one of them, making people live a safer life. But it's given me so much purpose and so much meaning. So what, as you're going through your recovery process right now, as you're starting, whether you're starting, you're in the middle of it, maybe you feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel and you're on the other side of it. What is the thing that can bring you purpose and meaning? Because I'll tell you, um, in my darkest days, when I didn't feel like getting out of bed, but I was in recovery, having a bigger purpose, which was if and when I get well, I want to make sure others never feel alone again, which is why the title of my books, you're not alone. I just think it's important that people know that like that you just know that you're not alone. You're not. We're here with you right now. Leo and I are talking to you. You're not alone is is something bigger than the moment you're in something to live for something that's more important than the pain and the anguish and the struggle and the confusion that you're feeling right now. The next thing that you talked about, Leo, was um, you don't journal once and get results. You don't go to therapy once and get results. And an example that everybody can resonate with, and Leo is as a D1 athlete, going to the gym, 
you don't go, we're at the start of the new year here. And I know there's going to be a lot of folks dropping that gym members. Now I'm just joking, uh, that, that have started their, their gym process. And I, and I, and I want nothing, but every single person that has a new year's resolution for their physical health, I, I want it to manifest for you. Just know I'm rooting for you. And I'm sure Leo is too. You don't go to the gym once though, and get results. You just don't, you don't even go to the gym once and feel sore after the first workout a lot of the times, right? Cause it's an ease into it workout. And with therapy, maybe you don't trust the therapist right away. Maybe you're evaluating the situation. So you're easing into therapy. But when we find that personal trainer that knows the body in a particular way, knows our body in a particular way and the exercises that our body responds to best and then we make lifestyle changes, right? We get on the right diet. Maybe we start meditating. And then we start showing up to the gym three, four, five times a week. And that personal trainer keeps us motivated, keeps us on point. But then we take the actions, we get the results. This is the exact same thing with your brain and therapy. Find the right therapist. Find the person that you, that you resonate with and then stick with it. And I think... Um, that all or nothing thinking, that polarization that you talked about, these cognitive distortions or errors in thinking, um, man, so important and a great call out because uh, if you go to the gym and have one bad workout or if you go and try out one bad personal trainer, do they all suck? No, and we know that. But for some weird reason with therapy, it doesn't always go that way. Um, so just keep searching and just understand it's a consistency thing, just like with our physical health. So give me an example of what exposure response prevention looks like in terms of dealing with the unwanted intrusive thoughts. Absolutely. So I think we, so we have to we have to take a step back to take a step forward here. So I th think the, the first thing that if you are an anxious person, maybe you deal with stress, anxiety, overwhelm, worry. We first have to understand that the brain's number one function above all else is our survival. The limbic system, which is made up of the amygdala, the hypothalamus, uh, the hippocampus, a lot of different areas, um, is responsible for our stress response, our emotions. The amygdala in particular is responsible for our fight, flight, or freeze system, which means that it is always scanning our environments, looking for threats real or perceived. And so what is a key ingredient to survival, right? If you're the limbic system and you want to continue to perpetuate the, the life of the human that you are inside of, what are you going to do? You're going to look for certainty. You're going to look for comfort. You're going to look to find ways for control in your life. And that's because control and certainty and comfort and knowing, right? I've been here before, right? How many of us get uncomfortable sometimes traveling because we've never been there before? Well, we were uncomfortable, not because we've never been there before, but because we don't know what it's going to be like when we get there. Maybe we can't picture it. It's uncertain. It's unknown. So what is the core emotion behind anxiety, worry, stress? That's fear. And fear is your limbic system waking you up and saying, yo, this feels uncertain. This, I don't know this. I don't know what's going on here. And I need you to bring me certainty and control ASAP. Otherwise, our life is in danger. 
So what's interesting is somebody with an anxious brain has what I like to call an overactive limbic system, overactive amygdala, everything works above average. So that's how we can start to kind of joke about it and look at it, right? Like your fight, fight or freeze system is on point. It works very well because the average human being feels anxious. They feel uh, fear. They feel the physiological symptoms that come with, uh, with, with survival, right? Think about uh, how you felt before giving a speech, Leo, maybe how you felt before going up and doing stand up, right? For the very first time, it's uncertain. It's unknown. Are people going to laugh at my jokes? Are my jokes going to fall flat? Maybe you feel a little bit of nerves before that. Again, it's unknown. It's uncertain. So we feel, we feel these emotions. Every single human being does. But when we need to start becoming more conscious of it is when those feelings and those emotions uh, and the behaviors associated with them linger, intensify, and persist over time. And so why do I bring that up? Well, the number one function of our brain is survival and our brain does not like uncertainty and it does not like loss of control. So when we have thoughts and we have thousands and thousands of thoughts a day, oftentimes we have thoughts that we don't think anything of, right? Most of them, most of the time we don't attach meaning or importance to the thoughts that we have, but occasionally we do. And with people who are prone to anxious thinking, um, and again, when I when I talk about it, OCD, I, I think it's important for people to understand that OCD is just a genre of anxiety, of of uh, of a brain disorder, right? It's just a, a type of anxiety. But what I was experiencing was anxious, intrusive thoughts that I was attaching meaning to, thoughts that I didn't want to have and that I wanted to actively stop, but couldn't. So. Some examples of this would be, and there's a lot of different genres inside of the OCD umbrella, would be harm to others um, or harm to myself, right? So maybe I would be driving along and I would have a thought, what if I hit somebody while I was driving? Like, what if I hit somebody? And then I would be driving home and I would get home and I'd feel a little, little flutter in the heartbeat and I would attach meaning to that. Well, did I hit somebody? Why would I have that thought? that's a strange thought. Why, why would I like, if I, if I didn't hit somebody, then why would I even think and wonder, did I hit somebody? Could I have hit somebody? I don't know. Did I, I don't know. And we start looking for certainty. We start looking to understand and put an answer behind it. Another one could be maybe having images or thoughts in your head of, of harming a loved one. And you're thinking to yourself, why did I just have that thought? I, I love this person. I don't want to hurt this person. That's not who I am. This is in conflict with my identity. And so what starts to happen is as these intrusive thoughts, that's what they're called, as these intrusive thoughts come into your brain, these unwanted thoughts that you would rather not have, you start to become scared of having them because you feel like they're real and you feel like you could potentially act on them, right? Maybe you're scared. It's uncertain. Well, if I'm having this thought, does this mean that I could, I could actually act on these thoughts? Is this something that I could actually do? Is it something I've done? And how do I know for certain that I didn't? And so what ends up happening as you ask these questions and you latch onto them, which is called cognitive fusion, right? Where you attach yourself to a thought, you begin to spiral down what I call the vicious thinking vortex. 
And at the bottom of the vicious thinking vortex is extreme anxiety and in some cases, panic, right? So a panic disorder. And so what ERP or exposure and response prevention aims to do is to teach you how to sit with and live with thoughts coming into your consciousness, like clouds floating in the sky, without having to latch onto them, or assign meaning to them. So that's the mind, the mindfulness portion of ERP. And then we have to habituate. And this is what's one of the most beautiful things about the, the limbic system. And Leo, I think you'll, you'll, you'll like this example, right? Because as a, as a comedian, I'm sure that your first show was a lot more nerve wracking than like the most recent one you've done because you've done so many. And for me, my first speech, I was so nervous. I nearly fainted before going on stage. And now I can give them with my eyes closed because the limbic system habituates the, the survival part of our brain starts to realize, oh, the thoughts that I'm having about tanking on stage and people not laughing at one of my jokes doesn't really matter. I actually gave a show. I did a show the other day and there were a few jokes that fell flat and it was awkwardly quiet for three to five seconds. And I said my next joke and then people laughed at that one. And then I said another one and people didn't. And then I said another one and they didn't. Then I said another one and they did. And then I said another one and they did. And then after the show, a couple of people came up to me and said, great job. And then I went home and had a meal, went to bed and everything was good. And our brain processes this and goes, oh, there's not really any harm there. Same thing with speaking, right? So nervous. What if I say the wrong thing up there? What if I blank and forget? Again, uncertainty, right? And I'm attaching myself to these thoughts. Well, what if I do blank? What if I forget? What if the kids don't like the message that I have to say? So you go up and you give a speech and there's a kid that yawns in the stands and you, you go, ah, is that, am I boring? But then you have other kids that come up to you afterwards and they're like, God, life-changing. Thank you. So you get this balance and, and you start to learn to live with uncertainty, but you do this through exposure of the thing that scares you. And this is, this is the exposure part where you habituate. So somebody who's having intrusive thoughts and keep in mind, I'm not a therapist. So this is not therapy and this is not me prescribing something for you. This is something you should do with a, a, a professional, but maybe somebody journals about their intrusive thoughts, the, the, the worst thing that could possibly come true happening, and they journal it without any certainty, without coming to a, a favorable conclusion. So maybe in my intrusive thought, I journal that I did hit somebody. I ran somebody over with my car. I hit them. They were fatally hit, and I am a murderer. I've, I've accidentally killed somebody, and I've, and I've hurt them, but I'm not going to resolve it, right? I'm not going to journal that people came to my aid and said it wasn't my fault. I'm going to sit with it. And what ends up happening as you do these exposures over and over and over again, while simultaneously learning the skill set of mindfulness in cognitive diffusion, realizing that we are not our thoughts, our emotions, or our feelings, creating separation, that our thoughts are like clouds in the sky, we begin to habituate and less and less we experience the, the intrusive thoughts. And as a result of experiencing the intrusive thoughts less and less, our anxiety and depression decrease. And in my particular case, thoughts of suicide go away. That's a beautiful explanation on how to sit with and live with our thoughts. And it sounds like what you're saying is to play it through. Because at the beginning of this, it sounded like 
what your approach was was to suppress it, ignore it, distract yourself from it. And it sounds like the solution, and we've heard this said in so many different ways, the way out is through. And sitting with it, living with it, and playing it out so that you say, okay, if I do commit this murderous act, this treasonous um, you know, activity, what have you, what happens next? What happens next? Exhaust it. Exhaust the possibilities of you playing it out. And for a lot of us, you know, for some people who can't write, uh, video record it. Talk about it. Uh, put it on a dry erase board. Maybe paint it. Put it in a song form. There's so many different ways that you could express and play out your intrusive thoughts. Talk to someone about it and, and see how they would do it. One of the things I, I love about, I took improv classes, is that everything was yes and. You, you could, the first rule, the number one rule of improv is to never say no, to never negate. You always say yes and. So you're always building on what's been laid out in front of you. And, and this is a similar concept here, to journal out the thoughts, to play it out, to talk about it. I shared something with Michelle a couple weeks ago that I was like, oh, here's a thought that I had. And, and she just sat in the pocket with me. And I was like, what? All right, cool. Now I trust her more emotionally. And now we trust each other because she knows that I'm going to be vulnerable and real enough to share with her my thoughts and feelings and emotions. And I, and I trust her more that she can sit with those, that shadow side as Carl Jung likes to uh play it out um and then you know you, you talk about the mindfulness of like it's just clouds in the sky going by and and i know like you said sometimes there's a lot of clouds it gets cloudy oh it's it, not it out it's just a, it's just a gray sky you're like wow no clouds it's just all gray but but that's why we pick up the phone and we call and we talk to somebody um anybody you got the one eight hundred S U I C I D E. You can always grab Zach's book. You're not alone, right there. And this is also why I love to read fiction, because you get to read about people who are struggling in life, in relationships, in work, and it reminds us that we're not the only ones experiencing this. It, even reading bios, there's not one bio on a bookshelf anywhere of someone who's just had uh, a storied, wonderful, perfect, uh, you know, un, un, unscathed life. Uh, we, we're, we're all struggling with the thing. Um, it's just a matter of how we're expressing that and, and showing up with that. Mm, I agree with that so much. Zach, you talk about uh, lifestyle changes. I, It sounds like part of the OCD distress was triggered about the time when you were you had graduated and now you have a new job. Were you working long, crazy hours? Were you putting a lot of pressure on yourself to succeed and achieve and accomplish? What were some of the lifestyle changes you've made? Just another just banger of a question. Excellent question. Again, I'll reiterate your voice is 
very calming. I'm very much so enjoying this episode. <laughs> and the lifestyle changes are are so important. And I do want for for the listener who maybe is thinking, hey, maybe I have OCD. There's other there's other genres. There's sexually intrusive thoughts. There's scrupulosity. So um, being being a sinner in the eyes of God, this is something that a lot of people struggle with, and they ruminate over these thoughts all day long, doing things to prove to themselves and God that they are not a sinner. Just right OCD, and then contamination OCD, which is the one that uh, I think a lot of people it's been popularized, right? It's the one that people are familiar with. Washing your hands. Um, compulsively, right? Because you're, you're trying to get all the germs off. You're not sure if you have or have not. And so there is, it's, there's a broad range of genres that people with OCD can have. Now, in terms of lifestyle changes, excellent, excellent question in terms of work-life balance. And I will tell you as an American, uh, what's the saying? It's, um, we live to work Whereas in a lot of countries, people work to live. Um, we put in this country, we put a put a heavy emphasis on our jobs and what we do for a living. And we can tend to lose a little bit of that broader perspective that who we are is not completely defined and tied up by what we do as human beings that pays our bills. Um, and actually having a job of meaning and purpose in, in, a, in a way is a privilege because there are people in this country that work minimum wage jobs that don't feel like their job brings them a lot of meaning and purpose. And to that listener, that is okay. If your life right now is showing up and doing a minimum wage job and it pays the bills and it puts food on the table and clothes on your back and a roof over your head, that is a great starting point. Now, of course, I would always advocate to create a plan to think about ways that you can enrich your life. Is that a career change? Is that additional education? Is that the time that you spend with friends and family? What does that look like for you? Maybe you're completely content and guess what? That is okay too. So I want to, I want to preface that, but to drill down into to Leo's question specifically to me, you know, I was so attached, Leo, to I got to go out and make a name for myself. I have to go be somebody. And uh, I just really didn't understand that that level of attachment to an outcome or a result was fueling in addition to a brain that is already prone to anxiety, right? All of us are, all of us, when we're born, we get a set of genetics and everybody's genetics are just a little bit different and that's okay. And I have a brain and maybe you have a brain that is more prone to anxious thinking, stress, overwhelm, worry, depression, and even thoughts of suicide. Do not be ashamed of that. Tailor and change your life to meet that. But yes, it's been proven over and over again that attachment to strong, heavy, intense attachment to end results will lead to increased feelings of anxiety and stress. And so for me, work, and especially being inside of a, a high-paced competitive sales organization in the technology space where innovation is happening at exponential levels was like pouring gasoline on a fire. And that's what I, you know, it's, told my wife that the other day, my brain is like, 
there's like always a little, it's like a little candle is lit. There's always a little flame in there. And depending on what I do with my day depends on whether I put water on it to put it out or I pour gasoline on it to turn it up. And so for me, I had to, I don't want to say do an overhaul because I think that you can make minor tweaks inside of whatever career path you're in now. But for me, I really was so attached to this idea of being the best sales rep, doing the most work, hitting my goals, accomplishing this, accomplishing that, that it became a habit. And I just piled more and more and more and more onto my plate to the point where in addition to already having that anxious brain, already having that flame in there, now every single day I'm waking up and pouring gasoline on it. So at a certain point, in addition to, to being anxious and, and struggling with OCD symptoms and, and going through the recovery process, I was also burning myself out. And I actually did this, like this has been a recent development for me, I would say probably in the last six to eight months. When I first started my business, I was so terrified of it, so attached to this idea that I had to be successful. I had to make it work that, you know, I burnt myself out. And I think one of the most, uh, it's, it's pulling a, an example from a book that I recently read, Psychology of Money. But one of the biggest reasons why Warren Buffett was quote unquote successful in life, at least financially, was that he, he kept himself in the game. Getting back to that, the, that theme with you, Leo, is keeping yourself in the game. He never burned himself out. And I see so many Americans burning themselves out, chasing that almighty dollar. And I get it. I get it. I'm not going to sit here and say that money, um, that you don't need to chase money and that money's not going to make you happy. Money does make things easier. It can make life easier. But at what cost? And for me, it was an absolute complete and total sacrifice of my brain health, my peace of mind in exchange for currency. So that was one big lifestyle change. I try to approach my life now with a much more balanced approach. I meditate three times a day, but you, the listener, do not need to do that, right? I would recommend starting with 10 minutes of meditation every single morning as the first thing that you do after drinking a glass of water. I wake up, I drink a glass of water and I meditate for 10 to 15 minutes and I don't have to be the expert. I don't have to be the guru. I downloaded an app uh, called Headspace. I also have Calm, but there are free versions out there like My Life or Guide. There's so many guided meditations on YouTube. And what I want people to understand is meditation is legitimately exercise for the brain like thankfully for modern science, we have done so many studies on it now that we actually know that we change various parts of the brain for consistent meditators. The amygdala, again, in that limbic system, the almond shaped part inside of our brain shrinks with consistent meditation. The hippocampus expands, which is responsible for memory and learning. And the prefrontal cortex or the CEO of the brain, which is the reasoning part of our brain that is constantly going back and forth with the emotional center of our brain becomes much more well-equipped at becoming aware of emotions and then combating them quickly. And so just through meditation alone, you can truly, truly start to change your brain. And I tell this to everybody. I speak at the IOCDF 
inter, this is the um, international OCD conference every year. I speak, I, you know, this year I spoke to over 30 universities, thousands of kids. I speak to people via DM, et cetera, et cetera. I will never stop preaching this. I think that in addition to gym that we start doing in, in elementary school, every kid should be taught how to meditate. And if we all meditated, we would be a much more compassionate, calm society. It is the most important thing outside of therapy that I've done. And the reason why I think I've recovered to the point that I have. Man, I meditate, try to every day. I'm, I'm willing to meditate every day. I hate the word try. Let me eliminate that word try. And you're right. There's, it's a, there's a point when you sit down and meditate where you, the noise becomes louder in the beginning. And I, that's the part that I, I, people don't really talk about. Everybody talks about how calming it is, but, but that's only part of the process. And maybe you don't even get to the calm part, to be honest. Maybe you, got so, you have such a backlog, you let that foot fungus go so long that um, 10 minutes might not be long enough for the dust to settle in your brain, for the, for the clouds to dissipate. So you, but when you, when I, some days when I first sit down, it's so loud, it takes about five minutes. And then what I start to notice is I can, it goes from my thoughts to my vision. I start to see shapes in front of my eyes. You know, I have my eyes closed. But it's like I start to, it's almost like I'm looking out into the universe. And then that's where, like, my brain, I know that that's when my brain is shutting off, my amygdala is calming down, and my prefrontal cortex is coming into play. So I love that you shared that. And, and just to reiterate what you talked about, um, one is detach from the outcome. All we can control is our effort. We can't control the outcome. And we live in a society that is keen on promising people outcomes. Oh, yeah, I'll get that done. Oh, yeah, in, in two days, done. It's done. We love, we love saying it. Done. Don't even worry about it. I got it. Hey, listen, all we can promise is I'll do my best to get it done. But in terms of the outcome, uh, people made a lot of promises for 2020, and then the pandemic hit and had to go back on their word. So uh, all we can promise is our effort. And if you did your best, you did your best. And that's the, that's the thing. Don't worry about, did you get an F on a test? Or did she break up with you or not call you back? Hey, did you do your best to let her know you were interested, to reach out to her, to call her? Did you study? Did you get a tutor? If you did your best, pat yourself on the back for effort. And, and we make fun of participation trophies, uh, which to some extent I agree with. But um, effort is should always be rewarded if you did your best we we salute you we applaud you we appreciate you and and then also journal it out a lot of times i talk about solvator ambulando which is walking if you uh it is solved through walking but journaling is another way because i know some people live in dangerous neighborhoods and for you to walk you might you might not come back so uh journal it out sit down grab some pen and paper Write it out. If, if you don't have pen and paper, take a hot shower, write, you know, in the little steam on the bathroom, uh, <laughs> on the bathroom mirror. Um, and then the mindfulness part you, you brought up about 
noticing your thoughts like clouds floating by and then the meditation sit with yourself it's it's exercise for the brain everybody everybody brag about going to the gym let me see let me see you sit with yourself for 5 minutes and then and then and then let's see where we at let me let me see that let me see that that prefrontal cortex start to get swollen let me see how big that that can get let me see those muscles let me see those neurons synapsing and firing off would you, would you let me see them dendrites picking up you know yeah don't don't, don't make me get don't make me get biological don't make me get physiological on you don't make me don't make me go into the well no, all right don't don't make me um people are like what happened to his voice uh zach is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think would be of value to the listeners out there uh, to help them relieve their, um, to manage and look at and sit with their anxiety, their depression. We could probably talk for three hours on the topic. I could tell that you and I could, could easily do that. I think that the biggest thing you touched on with meditation that makes a lot of people one and doneers is the idea that you're supposed to sit there and get away from your thoughts. Um, so I do want to, touch on just how important that is. It's not about getting away from them, but, but getting closer to them. Yeah. And you, and you absolutely nailed it. And you, the way you described it was perfect. (laughs) It really was. Um, you're so right. So for that person that's getting ready to download one of the apps or give it a shot, like you're not going to zero your brain out. The brain is the most powerful computer right now, at least on the face of the planet. It's got the, it's, it it has more thoughts than we can even comprehend every single day. You're not going to shut it off. Instead, it's about getting closer to them and learning to sit with them and, and begin to develop acceptance. When we can develop acceptance around our thoughts, we can, we can create freedom inside of our minds. Man, if y'all don't go out there and get his book, you're not alone. The only book you'll ever need to overcome anxiety and depression by Zachary David Westerbeck. Does your wife call you David? Like, what does she call you when she's mad at you? She's call you <laughs> Zach, Zach, Zachary. I definitely you Zach. said you're going to take out the, <laughs> the trash. <laughs> um, last question. Well, I have two last questions. Uh, what are you looking forward to, Zach? Oh my God. I was meditating before this episode and I was like slightly like overwhelmed, but in an exciting way. Um, I am just so excited about, I mean, first off, I'm just it, filled with so much immense gratitude. Like I remember when I started listening to podcasts back in 2014, 2015 and like hosts like yourself thinking, gosh, these people are like the coolest. And now 2020, 20 setting an intention years and years and years and years ago. And that now being my profession and what I do and getting to spend my Friday evening talking to you. I mean, I just immense gratitude because also you and I probably got to somebody tonight who really needed it wherever they are in time and space right now, when they hear this episode. And I'm just so grateful for you. I'm grateful for the listeners and you invited me in to talk to your audience base. Um, I'm really, really excited for 2022 and serving and and not even like this stressful, like at a bigger level, right? Because I think in America, it's growth, 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 growth. I think if that's a byproduct of showing up and doing the right thing on a daily basis, then great. But I really just 
I just love getting to people and helping them um, so much. So I'm just really, really excited to continue doing more of that conversations like this conversations with people who are in that dark place right now. Um, so that's what I'm excited about. Ooh, service, uh, man. I, I have a, a teammate who reaches out and helps me schedule things. And when I pay him, I put in, you know, I pay him through Venmo and it says, what is this for? And I always put growth. But now, cause I talked to Zach Westerbeck, I'm going to put service. Mm service i love that man that's a that's a deeper calling right there so thank you for that and thank you for the it's not about getting away from your thoughts but getting closer to them oh damn i'm about to get closer to my girl right after this oh i got a shower first because i worked out (laughs) but uh uh zach man last question and you you know what the question is because you you, uh you clearly have listened to uh, a lot of the episodes i really appreciate that support um as always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life before you kill yourself. What would you say to them? Well, what I would say first and foremost is you're not alone, right? There's, there's millions, millions of us that have been there and felt those emotions. And so I would encourage you to take this as that opportunity. I know it's hard. I know it's scary. I know that maybe it feels like it's the easiest way out and everything in your life in every direction that you turn just feels like hopelessness. But there are people in this world that care about you, people that maybe you haven't even met. And so I would just ask not to make a temper, not to make a a permanent decision off of a temporary emotion that we know now with science that we can fix with therapy, with meditation, with making all the right lifestyle changes. And so just inviting that person in in a non-guilting way to just hang in there for one more day with us because you're not alone and we want to see you come out the other side, a better version of yourself. Where can people find you? Plug all your things, Zach. (laughs) So you can find uh, You're Not Alone on Amazon. Just type in You're Not Alone. It should populate somewhere up there at the top. And then you can find me on Instagram at Zach which is spelled with an H-Z-A-C-H underscore Westerbeck, which is Westerbeck, all E's. Um, or you can go to my website if you want to learn more about my coaching services, uh, if you want to learn more about the book, my speaking programs, whatever it might be, you can go to ZachWesterbeck.com and find all that information there. I love it. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK or the other international phone numbers listed in each and every single one of the show notes. If you're in India, Canada, Sri Lanka, Australia, wherever you are in the world, there's an international suicide hotline ready for you. You can talk, you can chat, you can text. There are groups you can join. There are free services. There are groups that are help you pay for services. There is help out there for you if you don't have your parents to call. Um, and also, you know what? You guys can email me. I've been receiving emails from you, and it really warms my heart to, to hear from you. So uh, you can go to leoflowers2000 at gmail and, and reach out to your boy. Um, thank you for the, the reviews, the five stars. 
for sharing the episodes with your friends. And uh, thank you, Zach Westerbeck, for being on the podcast. Thank you, Leo. It's been an absolute blast. And I would say DM me too. If, if, if you want to email Leo, email him. If you want to DM me on Instagram, I will, I respond to every DM. So would love to hear from you.